Hello, hello. Well, good day to you. I'm Tom Bartels from GrowFoodWell.com. And I'm Darren Parmenter from CSU Extension here in La Plata County. We're the Garden Guys. And we talk about all kinds of stuff, mostly yeah. around food. And today we're going to be talking about several different subjects, uh, one being the county fair that uh, you're in the midst of right now. Yes, it is county fair. So this goes through Sunday, which is tomorrow. Yeah, it goes through Sunday. And Sunday is kind of the day of just uh, kind of people packing up. It's a little bit slower. Um, Sunday is a tough day at the county fair. How come? All the kids that brought animals, oh. which are quite a few, yeah. and they sold them at auction. They got to say goodbye. They say goodbye. And those primarily, let's say, you know, lambs, cattle, pigs, goats, some goats, uh, the meat animals mm-hmm. go to the packing house. Right. Where they are processed. So these are the kids that have spent, you know, hours upon hours every day with these animals that say bye to them, and they they get the process of what happens to animals when we eat them. We right, first right. have to die. That's kind of the big part of 4-H. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, and it's it's a good part for them to learn that, you know, their animal isn't there always as their best friend, but it can be. Sure. But sometimes it gets to be a little bit rough. Life is hard once in a while. And so that's the the Sunday goodbye sessions. That's the Sunday goodbye session, yeah. Saturday is the barbecue, the demolition derby, the carnival rides, the funnel cakes, all that stuff. And tell me about the, uh, there's a room where people bring all their prized flowers and vegetables and stuff like that. Right? Yeah, we have the room of the fair. Is that the exhibition room? What is that? Yeah, it's in the exhibit hall and we're upstairs and we're like in the nice air conditioned room because we keep it cool for the fruits and vegetables and flowers. Huh. So if you're if it's really hot on Saturday, which apparently it's not, that's a lead into another topic today. Um, it's a nice place to go. But People bring this stuff in, and it's. I sometimes don't know why people bring all this stuff in, but they like to show off what they do. Because I, this year, I had nothing to show off. I, I would have been awful. <laughs> Could you bring in some desiccated <laughs> yeah. tomato plant? And we saw some pretty gnarly snap peas and some, you know, some wilty flowers. But all in all, we get you know anywhere between three hundred and four hundred entries between flowers, vegetables, and fruit, and. Uh, what we expected to see is kind of what we saw with not a whole lot of vegetables. Like every year we get these huge cabbage, right? No cabbage this year. Interesting. Um, very few tomatoes this year. And it it's pretty cool how the fair showcases what happens in the season. Yeah. It was really cool during the beginning of the season. We had a freeze or a lot of people frosted out and it got hot. My tomatoes, maybe your tomatoes, are at least two weeks behind. Well, I planted a month late, so they're a month and two weeks yeah. behind. <laughs> so Tom is really rolling the dice. Tom could have won the green tomato category, maybe. <laughs> uh, they're like the size of a golf ball. I'm not sure if that would work. <laughs> but this year we had a ton of entries of apricots. Oh, sure. Because they apricots hit. Quite well. And they're hitting right now during fair week. You know, yeah. they're they're a little bit late in terms of when they usually ripen up, but... Beautiful apricots, and we actually the apricots were the uh, the champion of the show for the vegetables and fruit. So interesting. Yeah, what, it's no always, it's a slice of Americana, the the county fair in our room, yeah. maybe showcases that. But it's always fun and go up there. There's names on all the stuff. So if there's something you want to grow, either it be a vegetable or even a flower. There's really cool flowers, pretty amazing flowers. They're not. I mean, some really awesome pollinator plants, really cool natives, some xeric stuff. So. It's a fun place to go, and it's yeah. free. I've visited that room several times uh, during different fairs, and it's really interesting to see, like you said, the seasonal snapshot of the diversity of what grows here. 
and you see people's favorite plants that they've done really well year after year and they know how to really propagate that particular plant and they bring it in and it showcases uh, the potential of what yep. each of those those 100%. different varieties can can provide in our local climate. I think last year Tom brought what he was thinking was going to be the biggest I squash. I thought it was going to be the biggest zucchini there because <laughs> it was. was Romanesca, and someone got there before me and put one even bigger. It was bigger. like 20% bigger than mine. And mine was a good two feet. You know, it was big size <laughs> yeah. zucchini. So and we didn't have those this year, right? Because no. zucchinis maybe aren't two feet yet. Yeah, you know? they're way so, late. Yeah. yeah, or maybe people don't have very many zucchinis, so they're hoarding the big ones just in <laughs> case that in the dead of wintertime they need to eat your powdered zucchini recipe. So I want to tell you about one other story at the fair. So we had a, a a local who was kind enough to bring us a display for the fair, not a, you know, the biggest squash that, or the most beautiful, you know, Asiatic lily. She brought us what she's calling the Mesa Verde mystery squash. And I'm just going to read to you what she wrote on the, on the, on this uh, poster board. And it says, 10 years ago, my friend who works as a private pilot was transporting an archaeologist, movie script, (laughs) who had been excavating a site near Mesa Verde. He said that he and his team had uncovered some clay vessels estimated to be between 600 and 900 years old. One of the vessels contained some seeds. He planted one of the seeds and it grew a plant that produced colorful pumpkin-like fruit. So like 900, potentially like 900-year-old seed that's still viable. Wow. Is that possible? Sure. Yeah, in this earthen vessel. He saved the seeds from this plant and gave some to my friend. She gave them to me, and I have been growing these Mesa Verde mystery squash ever since. So I thought this was the coolest thing. That is um, amazing. For us here in southwest Colorado, who we talk about our trials and tribulations. Let's go back 900 years and think about the trials and tribulations of, you know, some of uh, the ancestral communities in Southwest Colorado who were growing cucurbits. They were growing pumpkins. Yeah. And at that point they probably realized, Hey, these things can store, you know, we can do different things with this. We can eat it fresh or we can, you know, hold it in some room for a fair amount of time. But these squash, these pumpkins, whatever they are, are absolutely beautiful. I wonder how they taste. I don't know. What I'm going to get you a seed. No way. Yeah, maybe two, if you're lucky. If I you're would lucky. love to grow those out. That yeah. would be so and fun. And we can see that same thing of like how well they store. What else we got going on? So we got well, the fair. It's funny. We're talking about heat, uh, and everyone is, I'm sure, familiar with the fact that the monsoons are monsooner or later. Um <laughs> Because we keep getting mentioned that, oh, yeah, the rain's coming in like six days. Yeah, it's how, coming. I saw How it. many times have you heard that this yes. summer? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's rain coming in. I think it's like yeah. six or seven days We were in now. Tucson, and it was raining, so now it's coming. <laughs> yeah, here yeah. it comes. I saw the hummingbird. Well, so we finally gave up on that. We thought, oh, it's it's just a great time to go up high because there's no threat of afternoon weather or thunderstorms. And oh, So okay. my wife and I went up in uh, high country outside of Telluride and did some camping. We set up the tent. We were going to do a three-night out. Uh, with backpacking in between and hiking up on the Colorado Trail and doing these loops up over the pass. And so we camped at about 11,400. Wow. And we set up the tent. Timberline is roughly <laughs> about that level. 12,000. So we're right below tree line. Okay. And, you know, we thought, oh, this is great. And then the clouds came in. And sure enough, 
we found ourselves to be the sacrificial players. Thank you. And, and thank you to Jen. And here's a little soundtrack of what it started out as. Oh, we have a soundtrack. Whoa. Yeah. So it starts raining <laughs> oh, so like that. This is, so tell me, we got to like you know, set well, the scene here. You well, guys are we start, outside? it's like we're chuckling. It's like, oh, great. So now we come up high and here come the thunderstorm. This must be the monsoon. Well, it turned into this uh, lightning storm that was incredible. We were getting these blinding flashes in the tent. And then shortly after this heavy rain came and all this lightning, this is the soundtrack. We stepped it up a notch. This is Mother heavy Nature's hail. Mad. This is hail that was just pounding the tent during the lightning storm. And it was happening all through. We found out a few days later, Telluride got hit uh, the same time we were getting hit and just had flowing hail and rain in the streets and flooding, you know, brief flooding where all the streets were just flowing. And we were at 11,400 in the tent. We couldn't move, and it was just uh, And you're laughable. not very close to a car, I'm assuming. Oh, no, no, we're miles from— The car's not, from, like, down the street. No, we're miles from any of that. And, yeah. And uh, two inches of hail around the whole tent. And it was just really uh, one of those experiences where it's like, well, just don't move and hope for the best. But anyway, we felt like, okay, we went out trusting that the drought was just going to yeah. continue. And so, up, Tom, I hate to tell you. Yeah. It didn't rain here when it rained. There. I know. It was very localized, and yeah. I found that out later. But now it looks like there's rain Whatever. coming up. I don't trust it's it. It's not even six days away. It's like three days away. I don't, know if I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even want it now. Yeah, now you're playing hard no, to I'm get. Done. It's like, fine. Monsoons don't want us. We don't want you. I don't you. want you. Yeah. yeah I'm just going to turn <laughs> my sprinklers on <laughs> at night. Well, Anyway, that was my little drought experience at altitude. And I come back home, it hasn't rained since, really. So it really like, hasn't. And it doesn't uh, feel as hot lately. And, and this isn't a weather show of two old guys talking about the weather. But yeah. it does, obviously, this stuff plays a big role in not just the home garden, but local agriculture and food production and all those things where many of our producers and even us as gardeners kind of rely on that monsoonal activity, not just for the rains, but it's... It cools the air down. It makes the nighttime temperature a little bit cooler. Uh, kind of makes it a little bit easier, I would say. Not as stressful for the plants and for us. Um, it just There's a whole combination of things that the monsoons bring. Not just those at afternoon deluge. Because yeah. in many of our soils, this monsoon is a pounding rain. And our clay soils aren't able to absorb the vast majority of that moisture uh, fast enough. Mm-hmm. So, I like the idea of the monsoon, but I love the uh, just the rain attached to the monsoon. But I really love the idea of it doesn't get any higher than seventy five degrees after the mm-hmm. rains fall. That's what right. really gets me excited. And that's that relates to what my tomatoes and it sounds like your tomatoes yep. are also doing, which is this leaf cupping because of the heat right now and the, yep. the hot winds, desiccation. And it's just really presenting some tough conditions for tomatoes. So when Tom mentions the cupping, visualize your tomato plant out there. This, If you don't give the tomato plant water for five days, maybe it droops. This is not a drooping. This is the leaves curling upwards into, I always call it a taco because it looks like a taco shell. So it's that tacoing of the leaves. And I think what Tom and I both have found that it's hard for 
the tomato or for the environment to reverse this condition on the tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And that's just observational for me. I haven't done a ton of research on this, but a couple of weeks ago we talked about my tomatoes in containers. Again, this is the Darren issue section. Right, with the black uh, containers. Yeah, black containers you... at 145 degrees right. surface temperature. So I spray painted them white. Right. The, not the tomatoes, the pots. <laughs> and it lowered the temperature 30 degrees. Great. Okay, we're going to see what happens here. Well, not much changed, you know, despite my intentions. Um, the deer still liked that tomato regardless if it was a – maybe course. they thought it was a taco. I don't yeah. know. But, yeah, so they came up and they nibbled on it, but those leaves stayed curled. And they stayed curled to the point of me deciding that those tomatoes, uh, I think there's three of those plants, are not worth my energy to try to continue to feed or water or do anything to. Because they're not going to go to fruit, potentially. If they're that much stress involved, then they probably won't get to them. Yeah, as we remember, we know like tomatoes – they're finicky, and so let's say the, the air temperature reaches 90, 95 degrees. A lot of times, they'll abort those flowers. Yeah. So tomatoes, in general, are going to continue to abort flowers because it's been so hot. So now I have a tomato that's stressed, that is heat-stressed, has no flowers because it aborted them all. It's the middle of, of August, right? I'm not going to get a tomato off these in the right, next, right. you know, six weeks. There's no way. Yeah. So, so then it's not worth your time to yeah. mess with it. So I cut that's, it. That's a sad day. There. I know. Yeah. It's kind of like the kids at fair. Yeah. <laughs> but not anywhere near as traumatic. We're talking about sacrificial moves on the fair and your tomatoes and yeah. my camping trip. It's all about sacrifice. Yeah. and It's it, a it, show about sacrifice today, people. What can you sacrifice? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I think the fair kind of symbolized a lot of what. We see in our garden too. It's just been a tough year. Yeah, it's, and we hear it all the time. You know, it's just man, this is a tough year to garden. This is a tough year for vegetables. Sure. So for those of you out there with gardens that are struggling, uh, be okay with it. It's not your fault. I mean, maybe, maybe parts it of it are, but uh, the conditions this year have been uh, adverse, to uh, say the least. To yeah. say the least. Yeah, it's just been very polar. Yeah. You know, very too cold, then too, too, cold, hot, too hot, too dry. Yeah, and so, lots of hot wind. So I'm just going to chalk this one up to being a, it's a great kale year. Yeah. My kale's doing well as well. Potatoes did okay. Corn's doing great. Yeah. Certain crops don't mind. It yeah. shrugs it off. It's like, yeah, it's always hot here. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the plants that know our environment. Yeah. Write those plants down because those are the ones to keep growing because they can deal with the stress. Yes, they can. Yeah. So that can lead us into these kind of dry conditions, uh, conditions with organisms And that relates to the word of the week. And the word of the week is? Cryptobiosis. And it's a metabolic state in extremophilic organisms. Another good polysyllabic word for the day. In response to adverse environmental conditions such as desiccation, freezing, or oxygen deficiency. So in a cryptobiotic state, all measurable metabolic processes stop preventing reproduction, development, and repair. So the environmental conditions then can be returned to be more hospitable and the organism will return or wake up to its metabolic state that it was in prior to cryptobiosis. So in a, in a short explanation, it's the ultimate pause button for a living organism. So you put something on pause, okay. either by freezing it or desiccating it, drying it out, um, and it just stops and there's no bacteria so it doesn't rot. And it just freezes in time. Is this what happened to like Walt Disney's head? Is this yeah, what they kind did? of. It's it's almost like a Star Trek episode yeah. or, or uh, Simpsons. 
Yeah. yeah. It, it, where all of a sudden you just freeze, like all motion has stopped, all metabolic function has stopped. And then later on, somebody somewhere reanimates you back to life. Yes. Well, it turns out it happens in real life, uh, typically in the lab with microscopic organisms. Right. And the, Not humans. Not humans, yes. uh, thankfully. Yet. Uh, yet. But the, uh, the two longest cryptobiosis uh, examples are both nematodes. One was in Antarctic, and uh, it was frozen for 25 years. And it was a nematode that was brought back to life. And then the longer term one, the winning uh, time record uh, recently was a nematode in Chile's desert that was desiccated for 40 years. And then it, it was reanimated in the lab, warmed up, and uh, moisture was added and it popped back to life. And it was a 40 okay. year time period where it was frozen in time, basically, and then came back to life. These examples show the power of cryptobiosis. Uh, in, in longevity. But what happened recently, and this is a few years ago, but it's fascinating to me, is those two records were broken by a long way by a tiny roundworm called Panogrelamus calimensis. Are you sure? Yeah, positive. You're positive. Yeah, and you can use that at a party. People just yeah, stop sure, and go, yeah. excuse me? Yeah. Is that go some, back in. Are me. you okay? Um, and it was revived after it was frozen in Siberian permafrost 46,000 years ago. Okay. Right. So that last one was 40 year record yeah. and they broke it by 45,960 yeah. years. You can go on, but basically 46,000 <laughs> years. So it was alive when Neanderthals walked the earth. Okay. And it at one point just froze because the permafrost just got to the freezing point and this thing just got locked in, yep. frozen. It stayed that way for 46,000 years. And the scientists found the nematode when they were digging about 130 feet deep in the permafrost inside a burrow that was once home to an Arctic gopher. And this is from an article on NPR, but there's like tons of scientific studies that are reporting on this particular this is in Siberia. experience. This one is in Siberia. So they took out this nematode in this chunk of sediment that was frozen and had been frozen for 46,000 years because they can carbon date everything around this thing. They brought it to the lab and warmed it up. And once it was thawed, the resurrected nematode crawled out and started making babies. This is the absolute storyline for a horror movie. Isn't this? I mean, it just seems like it's straight out of sci-fi. Yeah. The nematode, a female-only species, reproduces asexually after about eight to 12 days in its life cycle. And its life cycle is only two months long. It, it only lives for two right. months. So during that two months, at some point, it froze, stayed there for 46,000 years, came back to life and said, oh, where was I? Oh yeah, I gotta make oh, babies. Oh yeah, I gotta make babies. And it made babies just like it was the next day or whatever. But 46,000 years later, it's just crazy. That's unbelievable. Isn't that neat? That is unbelievable. So Very we special. were, you know, it's funny, this is a non-secular, but we were at a uh, dinner last night and. We were talking about bank names and how Whoa. banks are always named the first Western bank or the first national or the right. first. It's like there should be like secondhand second. money or secondhand <laughs> bank. It's just Bill at the secondhand bank. You know, it's like, why do we have to first everything? And yeah, that's true. You know, World bank, first bank, everything's got to be. Why can't we just have somebody on the second tier? It's, it's used money, or but it's eight. just as good. Yeah. Used, that would be their little logo. Secondhand bank used money is just as good. I mean, isn't all money used? I mean, I don't, unless you yeah. get like a, I've unless you get crisp, it. brand new printed money from First Bank. Do you really though? I don't know. Yeah, 
It's all digital at this point. I have a 2023 quarter. I can't wait to. Oh, yeah. You should keep that for a long time and maybe it'll be worth 28 cents. Never. Not in my <laughs> lifetime. It won't be worth. Chain's going to be obsolete. Anyway, not l- totally non sequitur, but I just, it was a curiosity that banks have this need to be, have the first or, the, you know, the big presence in their name. It's never like Joe's Bank. In case you're confused, you're listening to The Garden Guys. The Garden Guys. This is not a financial <laughs> advice program. <laughs> Save your quarters, kids. Save your quarters. <laughs> Plant them in the garden. It'll, it'll grow silver. <laughs> One of these things that I've been ultra, maybe not fascinated with, but just hyper, you know, attentive to is I'm trying to figure out my water. Like, and, and I put in two new garden beds this year. Um, and I just kind of do what I always have done. And I realize that it's probably not the most efficient. We did a, a trip to the soil garden at Riverview Elementary about a month ago. And they're using drip line, right? Which if you want to think about it, it's typically they're half inch or quarter inch in diameter. And it has emitters that are somehow, you know, stuck into that tubing Mm -hmm. every six inches, nine inches, 12 inches, 18 inches. And it emits X number of gallons per hour. Most of the time it's like 0.8 or 0.9 gallons per hour. So it's this consistent water flow which will hopefully saturate the bed. What I have, which I'm realizing is it's just asinine. Like you would think that after all these years, I would figure this out. I have micro sprinklers. I have drip lines that are connected to small little micro sprinklers that distribute water out. And I really like these in the late spring when I'm trying to germinate seeds because I can run my system for five minutes and it kind of just provides some moisture to that top quarter inch, half inch of soil mm-hmm. and a pretty good distribution pattern. But what I've, it's taken me so long to figure out and realize is as my crops get bigger, it blocks the misters. Ding. Yeah. And I've seen it, but in these new beds with newer soil, mm-hmm. you know, maybe not as much organic matter. It doesn't, so it doesn't have that same water holding capacity. I'm seeing those edges really dry out. Yeah. And, that is equating to really poor plant growth along the edges of my beds. And so I'm going to switch to this same stuff that we saw at the soil It's lab. the brown half-inch uh, round lines. Yeah. Yeah. But I've seen it as a quarter inch, so kind of like more of like the drip line. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering if that was could roughly be used. It's the same emitter spacing, roughly the same gallons per minute. Yeah. So I may try that too just because I'm running off of a spigot. So for pressure, it may be a little bit easier for me. I'm not right. sure. That's interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I've, I've been using drip lines for 20 years. and Which is like the flat tape. that. It yeah, just... I actually use what's called drip tape. And it's yep. a, a low-pressure drip tape that's flat when it's not under pressure. And then it pumps up and it's got these laser cuts on each uh, emitter that's about nine-inch spacing. Yeah, very common in vegetable production. Yeah. And uh, whenever you're using drip lines, there are a lot of variables involved. Uh, one, including how you're filtering your water. Are there any sediment Sediments. particles in there that can clog your emitters? Are you watching 
what's happening with the expanding circle of moisture from each emitter, what type of soil you have. If it's sand, there'll be a small circle right. of, of moisture. Water's can, moving down yeah, before straight it moves down. out. And so you have to figure out, well, how is the spacing of my plant relating to that spacing on the line? Right. And is my soil accommodating a spread of that moisture when I'm turning them on on a timer exactly. or not? So that is it reaching the root zone of that plant? So all those things kind of come together. And a couple of the problems come up for me, uh, it's my own human error, which is typical, where it's, it looks great when you're putting the seeds out. You can see the circles in the soil. They all touch each other. So that whole line has contiguous moisture. And then later on, maybe there's uh, some turbidity in the water, some particles get in there, yeah. but by then the plants have grown over the drip line, so you can't see, see it, it anymore. And so you can't tell, hey, it's not getting as much water as it used to. And my brain is triggered like thinking, oh, it's on the same rotation, it's on the same timer, it therefore is getting the same amount of water. I can't see it anymore because right. there's plants. And then two, three weeks later, I notice one row is shorter than the row next to it of the same species. And it's like, wait, what's that? And I look, and sure enough, some of those emitters are clogged. clogged. And so I got to pull the line, blow out the line, clean it. You can put a little vinegar on each one of those emitters. Maybe it's a calcium buildup if you have Which hard, is, yeah, not uncommon around here. Yeah, so you have to actually mitigate that problem to get that water regimen back to normal. And um, so that's part of the caveat whenever I tell people that drip tape is great. It is as long as you maintain it and make sure to keep watch and move those plants out of the way to see if they are, in fact, getting the same right. amount of water that they were at the beginning of the year. And you can reuse this multiple years. You can't. I'm on year eight on the most of my lines out there, although I'm noticing more clogging this year. So I can either go in and try to uh, remediate that buildup somehow and take each emitter, which is you know several hours of scrubbing each emitter with yeah, vinegar and getting work, in there yeah. and testing each line to see if all those emitters are open. My second way of fixing that is, and this has limited uh, success, but it does work in some cases. If I take up old plugged line, I go to the emitter and I take a thumbtack or a needle is even better, like a uh, really small sewing needle. I put it in the back, back it into a cork so I can push on it. And I put my own emitter uh, hole inside that emitter that's clogged okay. and I poke each hole at nine inch centers and I re- uh, That's a lot of work. Them. Well, it's that versus replacing the line and it's just yeah. a waste of plastic. So uh, if you can kind of mitigate that problem, bring that line back to functionality, then you can use it. So are you thinking of sticking with that same? Well, no, I'm part? curious because I'm, these lines are getting older and they're eight years old now. I, I might switch. Yeah. But I want to talk to someone who's using those brown uh, half-inch lines to see do those emitters clog as easily as drip tape. I don't know. I would think that there would probably would be no difference in the in the potential for clogging. I don't know what it would look like, but it does. It, it feels like, for at least in my situation, to be much more efficient use of water than these micro sprinkler heads that I've been using. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe switch a bed over and see if oh, there's sure. a difference. Yeah, you know, do, an experiment. do your science experiment for science. Let's do it for science. Okay, so here we are. Here we are. It's into August. the show. Into the, the showing show. season. This pouring rain. It, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Yeah, I'm cranky. You're not even. I, I'm for it. not even. You're over it. Yeah. I'm a non-believer. You turned your head. It's like I don't want you. Yeah. It's we like don't the kids. Want, like we don't hey, want rain. Santa that, keeps coming as long as you believe. That's an interesting way to deal. Just we don't need you anymore, and yeah. then it'll. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna turn my back to you, yeah. and you're gonna come up and say I'm sorry. Right. 
You're hey, go. I'm, I'm just going to strike the maple tree or the blue spruce in my front yard and it's going to fall in my right. house. Right, knows? when all the laundry's out on the line. It's just yeah, poor. Right. Yeah, you're yeah. in town. Yeah, oh, I know. man. Yeah. I'm at that fundraiser. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah I can't leave. So we were kind of like, we're, we're seeing how the season progresses. And I'm, again, we keep going back to, it hasn't been the best year, but maybe these monsoon rains will... We'll roll in and at least make our lives a little bit better. Kind of green some stuff up, get mm-hmm. some of that smoke out of the air, make you at least feel better. So one last suggestion for gardeners that I'm doing myself is um, in previous years, in most of the previous years, there were some late summer showers that were adding to your automated drip system or whatever you're right. running. And for me, I kind of get in that pattern like, oh, the drip system's on a timer. I don't have to think about it. But the plants are used to a little more water than they're getting. Right. So I have to remind myself, yeah, the drip system's on, but walk out there and do some hand watering, add some water to some plants that look like they may need it, and walk around your garden and check it out. Because no doubt there's some place in the garden that's not getting enough water because these storms haven't materialized. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. And I'm going to apply that to my strawberry plants. Had a great year with strawberries, tons of fruit. And I can tell that they're tired. Yeah. Like they just put out a ton of carbohydrates, ton of nutrients. They need that extra drink of water mm-hmm. um, so they can then go through the wintertime not being stressed. So thanks for that reminder. And fruit trees as well. They need some water right now. Yeah. I mean, think about how many, you know, apples on your tree yeah. are trying to get full of moisture when you own yeah. apples whatever probably like everything else 97 percent moist you know water sure i'm assuming you need to continue to give that water for to it just so it can mature yeah. so go soak your fruit trees that are that have fruit on them uh they're not getting the monsoons and they need that extra watering yeah and even if you're a fruit tree what do you always tell yourself you get what you get <laughs> i'm gonna throw a fit we'll see you next week take care <laughs>